First Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Well, last week I began the sermon with a teaser. I asked you if you ever wondered about how, if you ever wondered how we should go about finding leaders for this church. And I asked if you've ever questioned whether the Bible actually prescribes how leaders are to be chosen. Whether you thought about the kind of leaders we need to have in order to lead us into a healthy and godly direction. I told you at the time, last week, I told you that I am convinced, I'm still convinced, I'll continue to be convinced by God's grace and mercy and will in my life, that the identification of, the, of church leadership is among the most important tasks of the church. As a matter of fact, I would say, even go even deeper than that, or farther than that, it is, the, it is a life and death matter for a church. It is a life and death matter for this church. As I said last time, many churches choose their leaders based on charisma, personality, intelligence, which is really the same criteria of the world. We also tend, I didn't bring this up, but we also tend to choose our leaders based on business acumen and success in the corporate world. Surely a man who has carved out a successful career in business will be a capable leader for the church, right? Beloved, it does not work that way. Now I want you to know that godly men, godly, truly godly men, will most likely find success in the business world if they find themselves there, due to their work ethic, if nothing else, but also due to their honesty and integrity. But we cannot, we cannot, we cannot evaluate men based on their success in the realm of business. We cannot evaluate them based on their ability uh, to give to the church, that they've amassed wealth, Far too often, we give those who can give large amounts of money, we give them the inordinate ability to influence leader, the leadership of the church, either indirectly or directly. Either indirectly by, by listening to them in an ordinate, inordinate way, or by placing them in leadership because they have wealth. Again, that is not to say that a rich man one who has been blessed with earthly riches cannot be a leader of the church. That would be a short-sighted approach as well. But here's what I am telling you. We need to evaluate each man based on his biblical qualifications for leadership. Each man. So last week we began to study what the Bible has to say about biblical leadership. We began to answer the question of, of what the Bible teaches concerning the choosing of elders to lead a church more specifically to lead this church. Now, we named the, we have named this series Foundations of Grace. Particularly here, we're looking at biblical eldership. Today, last week that is, we looked at the first point in our series, the character, characterization of biblical eldership. In that point, we began to give shape to the eldership by giving it biblical definition. As we studied that for this point, the characterization of biblical eldership, we found four truths about those who are God's kind of leaders. First, we saw that God's elders, the man that God would have to be his elder, is a shepherd at heart. 
Put simply, the elder loves God's people, so he shepherds them. Now we saw this idea comes from the Greek word poimen, from which we get the English words pastor or shepherd. According to God's word, the elder, the elder shepherds or pastors God's people. And he does this by first feeding them or teaching them. He is skilled at teaching. And he knows the importance of giving his people sound doctrine according to the faith. And in, in many cases, the elder is not only able to teach, but he exhibits a giftedness and a deep desire to do so. Two, so he feeds them or teaches them. Two, the godly pastor or shepherd, he leads them. He leads God's people in the ways of Christ. As Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as also I am of Christ. Jesus simply told Peter to follow me in shepherding his people. Remember that in John 21 when he told, he said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. He said, look, follow me. Right? Do, do this because I do it. The clear implication here is that God's people will follow the shepherd who follows Christ. Clearly both Peter and Paul understood what it means to follow Christ and lead others to do the same. And that's what a godly shepherd will do. A godly shepherd will always lead his people in the ways of Christ. Third, third, he protects them. A godly shepherd will always lead God's people to safety. Many times he does this by helping them avoid pitfalls, by leading them to safe pastures. But many times that there must be a willingness to beat down the wolves. Do you get the difference? I mean, many times he leads them to safe pastures. He teaches them what is right and what is wrong, what, what needs to be avoided, what can be, what can be dealt with. But he also will be willing to beat down the wolves who desire to devour God's people. The godly elder shepherds God's flock by caring for them in all these ways. In all these ways. Secondly, so we saw that the, that the elder, God's elder, is, is, we saw that he's a shepherd at heart. Secondly, he's spiritually mature. He's spiritually mature. Put simply, God's elder will be a man who's been tested. He has been put through the fire of God's testing and has not been found wanting. He is by no means a new convert, but one who has walked with God for many years. Now we get this idea from a second Greek word we used to describe the elder, presbyteros. This word can mean old or older, but in the context of the elder, it is used metaphorically to mean spiritually mature. As such, the word doesn't refer to a specific age requirement for an elder. At the same time, though, we saw last week that we must recognize that it takes an exceptional young man to be ready for the, the responsibility of eldership. So there is an aspect of age that comes with it. We are warned not to lay hands on a man too quickly. So we want to move slowly <coughs> as opposed to quickly. So, so, so we know that God's elders are, are, God's elders are men who are shepherds at heart and are spiritually mature. This is what we want to look for in, in a man. Later we'll, we will look at how to evaluate whether these qualities are present. But for now, we simply we would simply look at the man in these simple terms and say that if a man does not possess these qualities, if he is not a shepherd and he's not spiritually mature, then he cannot be an elder. It's as simple as that. Thirdly, so we saw that he the, the God's elder is a shepherd at heart and he's spiritually mature. This is all review, by the way. Thirdly, we found that God's elders are overseers by description. Overseers by description. We get this third truth from the Greek word episkopos. This word can be, could be translated bishop or elder, or overseer, that is. We saw this word, though, has more to do with the responsibility of the elder. When a man is recognized as an overseer, he is given responsibility for oversight. You, you understand what I'm saying? That the overseer is given responsibility for oversight in the church. This entails the range of responsibility given to men 
who have been recognized as spiritually mature shepherds. Said another way, this word describes the work of an elder as he operates in the midst of the body. You could say then that the first two truths describe the character of the man or the disposition of the man, while this truth describes the responsibility given to the man as a result of who God has made him. Does that make sense? Does that sink in? That we have a man who is a shepherd. He's a shepherd at heart. We, we recognize he's a shepherd. We recognize him protecting, leading, feeding, and protecting the flock. We also recognize him as a spiritually mature man who has been, who has been put through God's fires, who's been tested. And then thirdly now we see the responsibility that would be given to the man as an overseer. This is the responsibility. You see, it's God who makes the man. He is the one who instills in him the desire to shepherd God's people. You could say either God has given you the desire and the ability, or he has not. You could also say that it is God who chooses the man and puts him through the training and testing that it takes to ready him for the task of leading God's people. It's, it's God who does those things. It's God who makes the shepherd. It's God who does the testing. We only recognize the man. He shapes us. He makes us spiritually mature. Now, I don't think I did a good job of bringing this out last week, but God makes a shepherd, and there's nothing that, that can change that. But not all men who are qualified as elders will be recognized as such. In other words, there are many spiritually mature shepherds who are not overseers because they have not been given the responsibility of oversight. Does that make sense? They, they, they are that man, they're spiritually mature, they're shepherds at heart, they just haven't been given the oversight, and that's okay. He's still a shepherd, he's still spiritually mature, he's still a gift to the church, but he does not have the actual responsibility of oversight. I want to make this distinction so that we can realize that every man who has been given oversight as an elder must be qualified. He must be that shepherd. He must be spiritually mature. But not every qualified man will be given oversight in every season of their life. It's as simple as that. We learned a fourth truth about eldership last week. Elders are a plurality by God's plan. This was a simple point. Put simply, that we don't see any instances in Scripture where a man, quote-unquote, goes it alone. alone. It doesn't happen. In every context, we see a plurality of men leading the church. Clearly, no one shepherd, outside the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd, can lead a church without other men to lead together in wisdom. No one man can do this. Because we're not, no one man is, has the, the entire uh, range of giftedness. There are men who, are, who have a variety, different men have a variety of giftings. But those, are gift, those gifts are only present, present in a plurality of men. Does that make sense? We have a variety of gifting, and all of that gifting would only be pre present in a variety of men who are functioning together in an, as an eldership. Now, you might be asking, what about the pastor? The one, you know, the one that's usually up front. Among the elders, Christ can and does give a teaching gift to some men. They have been gifted to teach, and because of this gifting, are effective as teachers and preachers of God's word. In Ephesians 4.11, Paul says that Jesus gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. But succinctly, Jesus has specially gifted some men to equip the church. In and of themselves, they have no more authority than any other elder. They just have a gifting that has been given for the church, for the use of the, 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 to equip the church. They've been given the primary responsibility to lead through the teaching and preaching ministry. But again, they have no more authority than any other, of the other elders. I would argue that each elder has been specially gifted for the role that Christ gives him in the church. You get that? That each man, if he's an elder, if he's a spiritually mature shepherd, 
in the church who has been given a responsibility for oversight. He has been specially gifted for the role that Christ gives him. Specially chosen and put in that position. So we should, we should then recognize the amazingly important and diverse job description of the elders. It's, it's, it's amazing what God has done and his plan of bringing men together in the plurality of elders to lead his church. And when it's functioning well, it's a, it's, it's, it's a beauty to behold. Well, again, last time we saw the characterization, the definition of the eldership. Today we'll look at our second main point, the call to eldership. The call to eldership. Under this main point, you will look at you will see, we will look at four subpoints. First, the call to eldership is crucial to the body. Secondly, it is confined in description. Thirdly, it is captivating to the man. And fourthly, it's confirmed by the church. Now, you'll find in your bulletin, uh, actually printed in your bulletin, you'll find those points. And I also provided to you a, a basically out, main outline of the entire series. So you'll see the characterization of the eldership, the call to eldership, the charge to eldership, and the character of the eldership. And what my hope is is that you'll be able to, to with, these, with these resources, be able to keep up with where we are in the series. Let's look at the first point. Biblical eldership is crucial to the body. This is under the call to eldership. Biblical eldership is crucial to the body. <clears throat> now, look at 1 Timothy 3. I want to give you a little context. So actually turn to 1 Timothy 1. This letter, according to verse 2, was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, whom he calls, in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, my true child in the faith. According to 1 Timothy 1, 3, Paul had instructed Timothy to remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Evidently, there were men in the church at Ephesus who were rising up as false teachers, and Paul had left Timothy there to make sure that, 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 that those men had been instructed not to do these things, not to teach these strange doctrines. And it says in verse 6, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. You see, these people, these men were not only teaching these strange doctrines, but they were leading people astray. And according to Paul, they didn't even understand what they were saying. They were just babbling off at the mouth. In short, there was a big problem brewing in Ephesus. Paul was concerned about this church and therefore, he put his most faithful man, Timothy, on the job. He left him there to deal with this issue. Now, I want you to hold on to this thought as we continue in the context. In 1 Timothy 1.18, Paul reminds Timothy, he says, he says um, in verse 18, he reminds him to fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. In verse 19, he says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, in these verses, Paul exhorts Timothy to keep the faith and a good conscience, un conscience, unlike those men who have gone astray and made shipwreck of their faith. You see, fighting against the false doctrine of these false teachers is serious business. Because their words have caused some to fall away from the faith and others are in grave danger of doing the same. So Paul is very concerned about those in this church who are, are Christian and are being drawn away by these false teachers. In 1 Timothy 2.8, Paul begins to address the proper roles of men and women in the church. Now this context, this context especially here, is very crucial for us to understand for us to completely comprehend what Paul is, will convey regarding elders in the church. He says this in 1 Timothy 2a, Therefore, I want the men, 
in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. First chapter 2, verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and hair and gold, or pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So Paul then here gives the command that the women are to receive instruction with submissiveness. And he puts, his, puts a prohibition on women exercising authority over men. Now, you might say, well, pastor, is this, is this cultural, right? This is cultural, right? Don't you think we've progressed past this? You know, we're in a, we're in a modern context, right? Well, in, the, in case someone might think that this is a cultural issue, Paul adds the next two verses. He says this in verse 13. For it, it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into, or sorry, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Excuse me. With these statements, with these statements, Paul ties the order of the church with the men leading back, with the men leading, that is, back to creation and the fall. Now, we don't have time to unpack this because this is not the point of the sermon, but Paul appeals to the order of creation which sets the standard which we are to follow in the church. According to Paul's the theology, we are a new creation and we've been made into a new man. This is antithetical to the world's thinking. But I can promise you it was antithetical to the world's thinking in Paul's time as well. Does that make sense? That, that Paul's saying that this is the order of the church. And it may be antithetical to what we believe as far as the culture, but I guarantee it was antithetical to, to Paul's day as well. And not only that, but that's why Paul tied it back to creation to understand that this is the nature of who God is. This is, what, this is the nature of what God has done in making us a new creation in his church. Then he says this in verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. In other words, Paul says that women have a central role in redemption through the bearing of godly children, but they, they forfeit this great blessing if they do not continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Really, you want to get down to it, this is a beautiful picture of what God intends for both men and women. Now you might be asking, I hope you're asking, if inquiring minds want to know, you, you might be asking what this has to do with our passage on elders. Well, with all this as our backdrop, I believe that it will help us see why Paul addresses eldership in the church at this point. Now look at the very next verse. 1 Timothy 3.1. It just dawned on me that these verses are in context, funny enough, with 1 Timothy 3.1, and I was, as I was thinking about it this week, it really hit me why Paul is doing what he's doing. He says this, 1 Timothy 3, 1. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. With this phrase, it is a trustworthy statement, Paul wants to draw attention to the importance of what he's about to say. Remember, he has just talked about the dangers facing the church. There's dangers of false teachers. There's dangers of a lack of a proper order in the church. And then he says, look, it is a trustworthy statement. He, he has warned Timothy, he's warned Timothy, his faithful protege, about all that the church is facing. He's also warned him about the danger of men not taking the lead in the church. It strikes me then, and I hope it does you, that Paul is now giving the answer to these problems. This is the answer to the problem. With this little phrase, Paul draws attention to the importance of what he's about to say. And he's about, what he's about to say is supremely important. You might be asking, do you think, Pastor, that, that this is really what Paul is saying with that little phrase? Well, if you look back in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says the, uh, the same thing. He, said, he says in 1.15, he says, 
It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Now he leads this verse, verse 15, with the same exact phrase, again drawing out the critical nature of what he's about to say. And I think that you would agree it is vital for the church to recognize that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, right? It's absolutely critical. Therefore, it's absolutely critical in Paul's mind that you get what he's saying about eldership. <clears throat> Beloved, the church needs godly and strong male leadership, which is crucial to the health of the body. <clears throat> Let's face it, churches struggle and fail when the men fail to be godly leaders. So according to Paul, the answer to the rash of false teaching and the lack of order in the church is for the men to step up and lead the church according to God's word. And according to Paul, this is a trustworthy statement. Everybody knows it. No proof is needed. It is obvious and clear to everyone in the church that, that the church needs godly men to lead, teach, and protect. They need godly shepherds to guide. Now, I want you to know, this does not discount the importance of the women to the body of Christ. But when the men fail to lead, I, I hope you get this, but when the men fail to lead, the women cannot thrive. Therefore, the church cannot flourish. When men fail to teach right doctrine, the church will be out of control. And when the men fail to protect, the church is susceptible to false teaching. And I'm going to say something else. When the men fail to pray, the church loses its power. Men, Paul had earlier charged that all the men in every place all the men in every place are to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So all the men are charged to pray, but the elders are charged to lead in this way, to be models of prayer. Ultimately, all the men are given these responsibilities, but the, but the, but the elders are to, to lead the church in this way. And the elders are shepherds who char are charged to lead, teach, protect, and pray. According to God in Hosea 4.9, he says, and it will be like people, like priests. Right? If the, if, the if, the priest, if the elders are not praying, the people are certainly not going to pray. If the elders are praying men, if they're men of the word, if they're godly spiritual men, the, uh, the people will be the same. As we, saw, as we heard earlier, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as also I am of Christ. <clears throat> that could sound like an arrogant statement if we don't recognize that Paul knows the churches are looking to him to model godly submission to Christ. See, he knows that. He knows that the churches are looking to him as the godly model of submission to Christ. So the, the church, the health of the church, depends upon his following, that would be Paul, following Christ and leading the church. And as we said earlier, what Jesus said, told Peter in John 21, follow me. Beloved, we need leaders who follow Christ, modeling proper submission to authority. You see, the elders are, are, are in submission to Christ. And, and I don't want you following me if I'm not following Christ. To this quote by John MacArthur. It goes without saying that whoever leads in the church will determine what that church becomes in large measure. The life of the church, the ministry of the church, the testimony of the church, the impact of the church, the reputation of the church, the character of the church, the emphasis of the church, all that is dependent upon the leadership of the church, end quote. Beloved, we must take we must take eldership seriously. Godly male leadership in the form of elders. We must pray that God, for God to raise up godly men in, to lead this body. It is crucial for the health of 
this body. We need godly men who will lead us by praying, by teaching, and preaching right doctrine, and by protecting us from error. I hope you recognize how crucial that is for the body. Let's look at the second point. The call to eldership is confined in description. This follows right after what we just said. Look at the text in 1 Timothy 3.1. It says, if it is a trustworthy st statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Beloved, the text is clear. Eldership is limited to men. As we've noted, this is consistent throughout the scriptures and finds its roots in the created order. Brethren, we must realize that God has set forth the proper order of things. We clearly saw this as we read 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, where it was Adam who was first created from Eve. Let me bring out something else here. Back in Genesis chapter 2, God gave the man the responsibility for cultivating and keeping the garden prior to the creation of the woman. A few months ago, we learned that Adam was held responsible for his failure to believe God's word and protect the garden from evil. You see, God gave that responsibility to the man, and he failed, and he gets the blame. The scripture is clear. Eve was deceived by the, the serpent, but the man had been given a clear mandate from God. So Adam was guilty of disbelief and willful disobedience to God's word. Believe me. God has given headship to man. But this is a grave responsibility. Men, you and I, we will stand before a holy God and answer for our lack of leadership. Do you believe that? We will stand before a holy God and we will answer for our lack of leadership. According to Ephesians 5, you are expected to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave herself up for her, gave himself up for her, that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also to are ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies, who he who loves his own wife loves himself. Men, male headship is a grave responsibility, whether in the home. Or in the church. Now you may be saying, well, that's talking about my marriage. Not well, wait a minute. But Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that a man who can't manage his own house can't manage the church. So there, so Paul, there, there's a there's an inner working here between the church and marriage. The marriage is a picture of what's going on in the church. Are you up to the task? It is your responsibility, brothers. And from my point of view, most of us are failing miserably, believe me. Failing miserably. We need our men to stand up and lead. And by the way, I'm not talking about worldly masculinity here. You know what I'm talking about. You know the man who's, who dominates his wife and his family? I'm talk, but I'm talking about loving your wife as Christ loves the church. And you can't accomplish that by barking out orders from the couch doesn't work that way. You must lead as a servant of Christ and, and your family. Now ladies, let me speak to you directly here. You've also been given a, an awesome responsibility. With our modern year, we might tend to think that Paul is limiting women here, but he's not at all. In, in Paul's time, the women endured incredible suffering at the hands of men. This has been true, as you well know, throughout history. Women have, have suffered at the hands of men. Christianity, biblical Christianity, has done more to give women a cherished place in this world than any other religion or system. Just this past week, I think it was 11 massage parlors in the state of Florida, right here in our own state, were shut down for selling the services of young women. Just a few days ago, one of the presidential candidates, Senator Kamala Harris, came out as an advocate for decriminalizing prostitution. Now I'm going to say something really, you know, Senator Harris is a leading feminist voice in Washington, D.C. 
She and she desires to see women to be enslaved. Did you get that? She's a leading feminist voice, and she desires for women to be enslaved. She would never say that. To be fair, she favors the legalization so that the industry can be regulated to protect the innocent. But beloved, we can't embrace dehumanizing activities which bring harm to women, such as prostitution and the murder of babies in the womb, and expect that any amount of regulation will truly protect them. That's ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. You want to protect them, protect them from those who bring them harm by punishing the evildoers. Ladies, the argument stands true. Do you want to be all that God created you to be? Then embrace the role he has graciously given you. It's instructive to look at Eve. She never once believed that she would be the Messiah, right? She didn't believe that she was going to be the Messiah. She believed that, that, that the woman was going to bring forth the Messiah. She was promised that it would be a woman who would bear the Messiah. So she was looking forward to bearing the man who would deliver them. Ladies, it goes without saying. You will not give birth to the Messiah, but, <laughs> but you can bear children who will grow up to be godly men and women who will proclaim the name of Messiah Jesus. Raising your children to love and serve Jesus is fulfilling, <laughs> according to Elizabeth George, raising your children to love and serve Jesus is fulfilling one of God's highest callings upon your life. Unquote. Brothers and sisters, God has designed the leadership of the church to be male. And I'm hopeful that the men and women of this church will fully embrace God's design for our families and for the church. I'm going to tell a story about Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you may have read it. She was left with, after her husband's death, Jim, Jim Elliot's death, and they were missionaries and and she died at the hands of, of some savages who ultimately came to know the Lord. It's an amazing story if you haven't heard it. After his death, there was no other male missionary, and, and she was left there with the family and no other male leadership in the church. But she was the only, literally the only person around who had the scriptures, so there was no one else to, to teach these believers. She had asked her husband before he left on this mission, what will I do if you don't come back? And he said, you must teach the believers. So what she did is, after he died, she took two young men who Jim had picked out as potential leaders of the church and explained to them that she couldn't be the one to lead the church because she didn't believe that women should be leading the church. Now here, you got to remember, I mean, she's the one who understood, she's the one who had the understanding. And she's taking these men who had very little understanding and she's saying, I can't lead the church, you need to lead the church. And she brought them in and she taught them. She, she guided them and she had them, she guided them in the scriptures so that they could teach the church. And here's what she said about this situation. They would get up and preach a not very good sermon. I could have done a much better job. But I felt that it was not my job to take over the church simply because I was competent to do it. It was my job to encourage these men so that they would become competent, end quote. You see, God honored Elizabeth's efforts and her obedience. You can participate, ladies. You can participate in leadership by praying for the men who lead and by readying the next generations of godly men who will lead the church. That is God's design. The call to eldership, then, we see, is limited in the scriptures or confined in the scriptures. The scriptures. Let's look at the third point. The call to eldership is captivating to a man. I apologize for running behind. It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work that he desires to do. Now I want you to notice that Paul speaks of desire regarding the eldership. As such, the man has been given a desire by God to lead God's people. The great reformer Martin Luther described this inward call as God's voice heard by faith. 
Charles Spurgeon identified the first sign of God's call to the ministry as an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. I think I described it this morning to Ricky as, as a second salvation. It's not a second salvation, but you get the point. The man goes through a second uh, dealing with God as he's being called to the ministry. Paul uses two different Greek words here to describe the desire. The first, which is translated as fire in the NAS and the ESV, it means to reach out or stretch out after something to grasp it. In other words, it speaks of the work that must be done to become an overseer. The man must pray and study for years to ready himself for the office. This is a, a thankless task that garners no special attention. He must pursue the, the office of overseer through diligent effort. And as such, his, his desire must be made evident by his work. He has given himself, the question is, has he given himself to the task of diligent study and prayer? Uh, the, another question might be, does he serve his family without complaint? Does he care for his wife and children? Does he serve the body without complaint? Is he the first to show up and the last to leave? He must have a desire for the work that shows itself in his desire to serve the body of Christ. He gives, the man gives maximum effort with no complaint in serving his family and in serving the body of Christ. He follows his Lord who said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You see, this attitude of service and sacrifice will be evident in a man's life. The second word for, that Paul uses to translate desire, is, is, the second word that he uses is also translated desire. It's a different word, epithemia. Uh, this word can have a negative connotation. It's been used to denote a strong sexual desire, lust. It was used this way in Matthew 5, 28, when our Lord said that everyone who looks on a woman with lust for her has already, already committed adultery with her in his heart. In general, the word simply means to have a strong desire for something. The desire itself is neither good nor bad in and of itself, but is always painted as such by the desired object or the willingness to compromise for the desired object. Let me, let me just give an illustration. I love blackberry cobbler with vanilla ice cream. Some of you know that. That's not an evil desire. I, I epithemia it. Unless I love it with so love it so much that I'm willing to sin to have it, that would be a bad desire of something that could that's neither good nor bad. I love to play golf, which is not bad unless I lose my job or family in pursuit of playing golf. You get the point. In Luke 22:15, our Lord earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples before he suffered. So we see that the desire in and of itself is not bad. So, to put it together, you have a man who, is in, who inwardly desires to lead in the church and pursues it with all his heart through preparation for the task. You get that? He inwardly desires it. He inwardly desires to lead the church, and he pursues it with all his heart through preparation. His desire is clear not only in words which he speaks, but in his actions. He is compelled in that direction. When I was in seminary, I was disheartened by the number of men who seemed to be hangers-on. They, they had been around the seminary for years, but had never seemed to move forward in ministry because they didn't seem to have a passion for ministry. Beloved, there must be a desire for preparation that is passionately pursued, but there must be clear direction. There must be clear movement in that direction. He must be a man with structure in his life. He knows what he wants, and he gets organized, and he pursues it. He's not all over the map. Now, I believe that there are that a man is called into ministry when there are no other options. He has no other choice but to heed the call. When I left my career, the Lord had pinned me in. There was no other choice but to go. I remember being almost apologetic about it. I remember telling people the story of going to seminary and thinking, yeah, I pretty much agree with you. I shouldn't be here. 
I'm not the right guy for the job, but the Lord called me and I had no other choice. It, it, it is exactly what I had to do. You see, God gives us the desire and he changes us. He makes us into that man. He puts us in that position and he, and he, he pushes you in that direction. And it gets down to the point where there's nothing else that you can do. My, if someone says that they want to go into the ministry, my answer is to run away. Because if God wants you, if God truly wants you in the ministry, he'll put you there. Now, beloved, you might be asking, what about the layovers? You know, he hasn't been called to go to seminary for training. But I, I would tell you that his call and desire will be no less. He may not be called to leave, but he is called to lead. And the preparation for leading will be evident in his life. You will see the grace of God in his life. You will see the grace of God evident in his life. Not a, it would not, it won't be a carnal desire. <coughs> Patrick Fairbarns, Baron. I don't have the right accent for that. You get the picture. Says this desire is not the prompting of a carnal ambition. It's the aspiration of a heart which has itself experienced the grace of God, which longs to see others come to participate in the same heavenly gift. <coughs> the man then, in quote, the man then, who has true desire, a true desire from God to lead God's people will always want to do it for right and godly reasons. They will have a desire to serve God's people which overrides a desire for the office. Get that? They will have a desire, a desire to serve God's people, which overrides their desire for the office. He will be about shepherding God's people, even if he has not been given the responsibility of, of the overseer. And let me tell you something. If a man is unwilling to serve in areas which are unseen, then he's not an elder. We need men who lovingly serve the body and are not intoxicated by the power of the office. Make sure we get that. We need men who are loving, who lovingly serve the body of Christ and are not intoxicated by the power of the office. John MacArthur aptly states, ambition for, for office corrupts. Desire for service purifies. Ambition for office corrupts. Ambition for office always corrupts. Service Desire for service purifies. That's why Paul says that it is a trustworthy statement. The men, the church needs men who desire to love Jesus, follow Jesus, teach Jesus, proclaim Jesus, serve Jesus and his people, and pray to Jesus. And as John Newton says, none but he who made the world can make a minister of the gospel the only ones who will do this as God intends are the ones who God makes. Beloved, we must have this type of men leading these types of men. We've seen the call of the eldership is crucial to the body, confined in description, captivating to the man. Fourthly, and this goes fast, the call of the eldership is confirmed by the church. All these things that we've talked about must be visibly present in the man to be, con to, to be confirmed by the church. Paul exhorted Timothy, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Verse 15, Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to who? To all. To all. You see, we must see the progress of the man in regards to godliness. We must see the grace of God working in and through the man. We must see this in his desires. His life will be shaped by his desire for godliness. He will be growing in his dependence upon the Lord. He will be growing in his maturity. He will be growing in his role as husband and father. He will be growing in his knowledge of God's word. He will be growing in his service to, to his family and to his church. He will be growing in his convictions. I know that I was that one fast. But 
but he's a man who's who's growing in all those areas. We'll see it in his character. See it in his desires. We'll see it in his character. We'll be growing in godliness. And it's objectively seen in his life. And we're, we're going to see later, in the next couple times, we're going to see the objective qualities of the overseer described by Paul in, in 1 Timothy 2, 3, verses 2 through 7, and Titus 5, 1, 5 through 9. Let me leave you with this quote from Samuel Bringle in a book called Soul Winner's Secret. Bringle was one of the early leaders of the Salvation Army. and He speaks of, of spiritual authority and leadership. <clears throat> says it, he says, it, it, spiritual authority and leadership is not won by promotion, but by many prayers and tears. It is attained by confession of sin and much heart-searching and humbling before God. By self-surrender, a, courage, a courageous sacrifice of every idol, a bold, uncomplaining embrace of the cross, and by eternally looking unto Christ Jesus crucified. It is not gained by seeking great things for ourselves, but like Paul, by counting those things that are gained to us as lost to Christ. This is a great price, but it must be paid by the leader whose power is recognized and felt in heaven on earth and in hell. End quote. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and thank you for this time of preaching, time in your word. Lord, may we take seriously the call to eldership. This is a serious call. Father, you have put it, put it in our hearts in men's hearts to lead the church, to desire to minister. And we know that that will be accompanied by love of your people, by service to you and your people. Lord, we pray that we as a church would be looking for those men who truly desire to lead in a godly way. We're not just drunk with power. Father, we as we have seen power corrupts but service corrupts. Thank you and praise you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.